am about to tell you a story. A story about gender, yes. A story about my only child, Kat, who is here with me today and who created this service with me. It is also a story about the deepest work of parenting, which we honor on this day we call Father's Day. The work of parenting that involves seeing, protecting, and nurturing the true identity of our children and building a world that will also see and protect and nurture them. So before I begin the sermon that I wrote before this past Friday and before the verdict that Friday brought, I wish to pause to honor the life of Philando Castile, a man known for his work with children and his ability to see them and to love them just as they are. He was also, as a man, the child of another woman, a mother still deeply grieving his untimely and unnecessary death. And so in his honor, I lift up this saying of my colleague, the Reverend Rob Eller Isaacs, who reminds us powerfully, there are no other people's children. Whether we are directly involved in parenting within our own homes and families or not, every one of us is called to respond to the events of our day as loving, nurturing, and caring parents, seeking to protect and nurture all children in our communities and the child within each one of us. We are also all called to build a society and systems of justice that will keep all children safe and support their flourishing, especially those at risk of harm because of gender, race, abilities, religion, orientation, or any other box by which we label one another. So let us share this time together this morning, each and all of us as parents, opening our hearts to every child and to the child within each one of us at any age. Let us awaken our deepest capacity for love, for nurturing and protecting the seeds of the future that are carried within us all. So let us begin. They're everywhere. Surely you have seen them too. Those boxes we are so often asked to check off, tucking our identities into that contained space of categories meant to help others, to others in the data systems they manage to know who we are. By race, age, education, income, religion, political affiliation, so many tiny boxes into which we are supposed to fold and fit our beautifully complex identities. But the first box, the one checked on our behalf sometimes before we are born, is the box of gender. 
And it's happening even earlier now. For some parents, the long-standing enthusiasm of the birth announcement that proclaims, it's a boy, it's a girl, has now moved up in time with the practice of having reveal parties before a child's birth, in which the gender of the unborn is announced with great suspense and weight of importance. All of which might be fine if it were only that simple. My own experience as a parent has been a little different. You might call it outside of the box, as the saying goes, but it is increasingly shared by many others there was nothing unusual about our experience at first. Like many in my generation, my husband David and I were told the gender of our child months before they were born by an ultrasound technician who said we were having a boy. Despite the fact that we had not asked, nor did we feel the need to know. So we continued decorating the baby's rooms in pinks and blues both, and when my mother asked if she shouldn't leave the pink out of the quilt she was making for the baby's crib, I said, definitely not. For although David and I followed some traditional gender stereotypes ourselves in our basic activities and preferences and, ex and expressions, there were plenty of ways in which we broke out of those roles too because we didn't believe in letting gender have the last word in who we were and what we did. And we wanted the same freedom for our child. As it turned out, though, in the early years of our child's life, we discovered we had much to learn about what that freedom really meant. For as our beloved Charlie our beloved son, whom we called Charlie, grew from an infant to a toddler, and as we tried to make room for them to show us who they were, at almost every turn, our child showed us a very feminine way of being Charlie. They had no interest in balls or trucks or roughhousing of almost any kind. They preferred books and dolls, a toy kitchen, and peer girlfriends. At age four, they were posing coquettishly in dance class photos and sashaying through the house in a pair of ruby slippers. An articulate and early reader, our child made up stories about boys and girls who switched identities, and they wrote sweet little notes to us, signing them with a self-chosen pseudonym, Rose. This was more than 20 years ago. And David and I knew almost nothing about gender identity or what transgender meant. And no one we knew at the time was talking about being queer as anything other than the slur it had been for gay people when we were growing up. Although we understood somewhat that the boxes we all check off declaring male or female were too small for the wingspan of identity as the poet so beautifully puts it, we didn't realize the boxes are also too few in number. For those of you who want to learn more about this, and I hope that will include many of you, please stay after the service for Kat's workshop called Gender 101, Fostering Justice, Equity, and Compassion for All Genders. Kat will cover this in much greater depth, but for now, I'll offer a very quick overview. 
hoping to open up those gender boxes and unpack them a little bit. The truth is, when the ultrasound technician looks at that fuzzy image on the screen and says, boy or girl, not only is the image rather unclear, but the pronouncement is based on just one thing, anatomy, which is the same primary factor used in choosing male or female on a birth certificate which later in life will determine the gender of our driver's license, our passport, and so much more. However, we now know that what we traditionally think of as gender is much more complex than that. It is a combination of at least five factors. Anatomy, DNA, or XX or XY chromosomes, hormones, psychology, or what we might call core identity, and expression. As anyone who has done work by committee knows, when you bring five voices to the table, the discussions can be rich, but they will not always agree. So first, we have to realize that declaring one's gender solely by anatomy can be woefully inadequate at best, and a bit dictatorial silencing all the other factors that are at play. We might better understand gender as a conversation between these five factors, and possibly more. And in that conversation, on, many, on any given day and in any given person, there may be dominant voices, or they may all be in agreement but it will not always be so. And in some cases, the different voices of anatomy, chromosomes, hormones, emotions, and core self, and how we see ourselves and how others see us, all these voices together might create a cacophony that can be hard to understand. Or they can also be like a choral performance where different parts of the choir take different turns carrying the melody of who we are and how we present ourselves to the world, it can be that fluid. It can be that multidimensional. It can be that beautiful. Which brings us to the matter of having only two boxes to check as our options. If you've ever felt frustration over the lack of choice in a two-party system, Perhaps you know how much gets left out. Or, as Unitarian Universalists, perhaps you've had the experience of filling out a form that asks your religion. You read the boxes. It says Christian, probably Jewish, maybe Muslim, maybe even Buddhist and Hindu or none. Maybe there's a box for other but possibly not Unitarian Universalist. And even with more than two options, does this adequately reflect the deep history and beautiful complexity of our faith tradition? The way it has grown from Judeo-Christian roots and the way it draws from each of those wisdom traditions and more, and the way it includes members who also practice each of those traditions with their own boxes. When it comes to gender, two boxes are simply not enough. 
We have learned scientifically, culturally, and historically that the categories of male and female as mutually exclusive options that preclude all others is simply incomplete. In nature, we have many examples of a greater variety in gender. And as humans, we do as well. With what some regard as a constellation and others as a whole galaxy of gender. And in that galaxy, there are people whose gender identity is different from what was assigned to them at birth. Some of whom might transition to their true gender identity, given the choice and the resources and the support they need to do that. But there are other transgender people for whom the choice between male and female is either too small or too rigid. These people, while also transgender, might name themselves by additional monikers, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer, or gender fluid among them. And for them, the boxes themselves make no sense. Of course, breaking these boxes open is not easy, not only because the architecture of our culture and society is built on a framework of two genders, but because our brains are too. The human brain is a busy place of many ideas, emotions, and sensations, and it needs to take shortcuts wherever it can to process and understand things. These shortcuts are known as frames. Often when we're learning some new concept or understanding, we first have to break out of the old frame that governs our thinking. This is true in our work for justice, too. We must build new frames in order to bring about the new thinking and new policies and new realities that we seek and support in the world. The gender binary, male and female, is one of the most basic frames in our brains. And we use it to understand identity, capacity, roles, relationships, strengths, weaknesses, and much more. It creates a dualism that is reinforced by our language. And this makes it especially hard to break out of the either-or boxes of male and female, because the pronouns available to us in traditional English require that we choose between he and she. We have no gender-neutral singular personal pronoun as an alternative to he or she, or at least we have not had one until now. When a growing number of people are adopting the pronoun they, them and theirs as singular pronouns, there is a grammatical precedent for this. We say, somebody left their phone here. Do you think they'll come back to get it? And we're talking about one person. So I now refer to my son as cat and as they. And they might ask you to do the same. Others are adding whole new pronouns to our lexicon, such as Z and here and here's, and still others ask that we avoid pronouns at all. Why would we do this? It can be challenging and uncomfortable. Some of you may be shaking your heads. I have heard no shortage of objections over the matter of gender and personal pronouns, some of them from my favorite authors, as well as some of my own family members who have told me point blank with varying degrees of sensitivity 
No, I can't do that. I love language too much to do that. To which I say, really? I'm a writer. I love language too. And I especially love the way it is meant to grow with us, to adapt to new understandings, to break open the boxes of grammar and glossaries when they become too small for who we are and who we are becoming. So we are, many of us, trying to learn new ways, asking people what their pronouns are, even if we think we know. Saying what our pronouns are when people ask us, even if we think they should know. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Stopping with our assumptions, as the poet says, trying to break old habits of seeing and knowing and speaking in the dualistic confines of he and she, boys and girls, men and women, male and female. This is a beautiful, if sometimes awkward, effort and unfolding. But it is more than that, too. The call for breaking open the boxes of gender is not just a grammar lesson in new pronoun usage, nor a mathematics lesson in adding new personal options for identity and self-expression. It is a gravely important call for justice aimed at ending oppression, discrimination, humiliation, violation, and violent assault. Make no mistake, the work to expand our notions of gender and our embrace of gender diversity and fluidity is for many in the queer and transgender community a matter of life and death. It's true, we are in a time of growing awareness and perhaps more incrementally growing acceptance of gender variance. It's evidenced by numerous transgender characters and content in our movies and TV shows and by increased coverage in the media. But the reality of living outside the two-box gender system that still rules our thinking, our birth certificates, driver's lessons, licenses, passports, and bathrooms looks quite different. Last year, 2016 surpassed 2015 as the deadliest year for transgender people in the United States. And the vast majority of those killed were transgender women of color living at the dangerous intersection of transphobia, racism, and sexism. Other tallies from a large national survey of transgender people in 2015 painted this picture of transgender experience in the United States. Of those who were out as transgender in K through 12 schools, over half were verbally harassed. One in four were physically assaulted, and one in eight were sexually assaulted. Almost one in five experienced so much harassment they changed schools. Of those in the workforce, one in three reported just in the previous year being fired or denied a promotion or experiencing other workplace harassment or assault because of their gender identity. Almost half of all respondents reported being sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. 40%, 40% have attempted suicide in their lifetime a rate nine times higher than the general population. One in 12 who were out with their family of origin have been kicked out of the house, and one in 10 ran away from home. 
and of great relevance to us as a faith community, one in five who had ever been part of a spiritual or religious community left because of rejection. Note, these are not just numbers. They represent real people, real lives, and the daily experience of almost one and a half million transgender people in the United States today. The story they tell of rejection and alienation, the discrimination and abuse and assault is a troubling reality for those don't, who don't fit neatly into the gender boxes assigned to them at birth. Being transgender carries high stakes for safety, education, employment, and the most basic sense of belonging that is critical to our human well-being and our understanding of who we are and who we are called to be. What then are we asked to do as Unitarian Universalists, as people of covenantal faith tradition committed to both radical hospitality and justice-making? There are three covenants that keep us engaged in the work of love, writes Mark Nepo. It is not the work of love to change others or force their growth in our direction. It is the work of love to create conditions by which what is true and beautiful in all we behold can grow and blossom, bringing forth its deepest nature. And the work of love depends on giving others, especially young people, a sense of safety in the world, nurturing their confidence to lean into life and the unknown. And finally, the third covenant of love is to keep each other company. When we're drowning in our experience and awash in our feelings, until it can all right size, until our experience and our feelings can once again sustain us. These covenants exercise the muscle of compassion we call the human heart. Breaking open the boxes of gender is a work of love, overcoming the fear that divides and threatens our civil society. Exercising the muscle of compassion we call the heart instead of reinforcing rigid walls in our brains that separate male from female, men from women, him from her, us from them. Are you ready to open your heart to wider understanding of what we mean when we say he or she or they or we? I remember when our son Kat was about to turn six. They'd been asking for a kitten for some time. So David and I decided it was a good time as any to add a feline member to the family. And the morning of Kat's birthday, we took a box big enough to fit the kitten inside and removed the bottom from it. And then we wrapped it with the bottom open and a bow on top. And when it was time for Kat to open their presents, we made them leave the room for a few minutes while we retrieved the new kitten from hiding and placed it in the center of the living room and put the box on top of it, right on the floor. Kat returned to find this single present sitting in the middle of the floor. And before they got close enough, and we said, go ahead and open it. But before they got close enough to it to pick it up, the box began to move. <laughs> and Kat stepped back, wide-eyed and astonished. The box shook a little bit more, 
and it shifted here and there, this way and that, and we said, it's okay, go ahead, pick it up. And they did. And it's hard to say who was more astonished, <laughs> the kitten or the cat. <laughs> there they were, both looking at them, one another, box thrown aside, each of them beautifully present to the other, limber, alert, and so alive in that moment of true encounter. This, my friends, is what we are all being asked to do right now. To meet one another without the boxes that conceal and contain us. To see beneath the surface of the categories that divide us. Not only one of us from another, but from the larger wholeness within us all. And from the living, loving movement of our hearts and minds and identity. To say to one another, and really mean it, namaste. The sacred in me sees the sacred in you. So may it be. Amen.